in Habakkuk. There's a little verse in Habakkuk. It's at the end of two remarkable chapters of a man wrestling with God. I'm not going to preach from that. I'm preaching that in Mark's church on Sunday morning. But after despondency and despair, because God isn't who Habakkuk had created in his own mind. He created a God that doesn't exist, and then was disappointed that this God didn't do what he thought this God should do. But in Habakkuk chapter 3, his prayer, remember his first prayer was a lament. The second prayer was a prayer of disappointment. This is his third prayer. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And some translations do not say, repeat them in our day, but do it again, Lord. Merrill and I have had the privilege of being in five different revivals, moves of God, renewals, starting with the Jesus people and the charismatic renewal of the 70s. And I echo that prayer with some trepidation because I know what the previous moves, renewals, revivals, and reformations brought. They brought an ultimate challenge of a transformed heart and a changed lifestyle to obey Jesus in an upside-down kingdom. But if we can find mercy and courage to pray that prayer, do it again, Lord. Remembering church history tells us that great moves of God happen when men give up and can no longer cope, can no longer have an answer, a solution, are not capable of managing the times in which they live. And it's into that context, dear South Africans and Zimbabweans, that once again, dare we have the courage and the robustness to consider the outworking of a do it again. It's not a series of meetings that make us feel good about us. It's not a series of moments that get us to feel good and shake good and do all those things. They are deep and defining moments of transition and transformation whereby we encounter the living God and we live a life in faithful obedience. There's a couple in our church, Dan and Susie. They're British. They've got seven kids. But that in and of itself is an amazing story because each one of the seven are amazing. But her parents are in their 70s, and they've asked God if they can die in Afghanistan. Their kids have pleaded with them. Please, during the Taliban takeover, their name was on the hit list. The CIA and uh, MI6 came to them and said, you're on the hit list. They're going to kill you, publicly execute you to show Afghanistan what they're going to do to Christians. And there was many a, a phone call across the oceans between the Reynolds and their kids who pleaded with them to come home. And with tears, and I saw one of the calls, with tears, heart-breaking, grieving tears, they said, and what must we do? Go and die in an old age home in England. That we cannot do. While there are people that need to hear the precious name of Jesus, while there are regions that need to be impacted, while there are peoples that need to encounter the living God, how dare we go and live a life of mediocrity? He has heart issues. If it plays up again, he will die because there are no medical facilities for him. And I'm telling the story to stir our hearts to greater global adventures. They said, I will rather die in a roadside bomb than of old age in a senior center. 
the gospel must still go to the nations of the world. And who is better, they said, than us? We are just the right age to go and be on divine assignment and to go and live a life worthy of the calling. They ran from the Taliban. Two o'clock in the morning, they get a knock on the door. Come, we have to go now. And God, like an angel, went ahead of them and cleared the way they could get across um, the capital of Afghanistan, Kabul. Just for no reasons. They know no roadblocks where they need to go to. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the Taliban have approached them and say, we see you run schools successfully. Will you start a school for us in every province in Afghanistan? Be careful when we pray for revival, because it might revive your soul to a life of obedience in an upside-down kingdom. It's great to see you. It is wonderful to be here. I have been incredibly excited. This is the third of our um, 2022 Acts 20 times. As we were ending 21, uh, we were kind of disengaging from COVID into the COVID reality. What does that look like? We felt God say, gather the elders, the leaders, the emerging leaders together in the five regions that we work into. Acts 20 moment where Paul in Miletus called for the elders to meet with him and he powerfully instructed them of what would happen once he leaves. Once he leaves. There's much leaving to still happen, but not leaving based on fear, anxiety, or depression, but obedience, faith, and courage. So we had one for Western Europe in Wales in February. We just had one in Dubai and the surrounding areas last month. This one, and then in November in Sri Lanka. In July, we have 150 young people, millennials and Gen Zs, meeting in Portugal, Porto, Portugal, in a church called Surf Church, led by a Brazilian surfer. The faith and the excitement around that has been humbling. We've got 27 people going from our little community. Students, without jobs, nannies, working in restaurants, trusting God for the thousands of dollars needed. And I said to them, there'll be no fundraising. This is an adventure of faith. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in dramatically exciting times. But I warn you honestly with deep love and affection to put our hands up to a global gospel adventure demands and requires that we live our, lay our lives down. It's a couple we work with in the Silk Road, Daryl and Sarah Jump. Meryl and I were in Istanbul in February, just before the lockdown, two years ago. And through a mutual friend, they said, you must meet Sarah. So I contacted Sarah, and we landed 11 o'clock at night in Istanbul, got to our hotel, and there was this beautiful 40-year-old young American she had taken a train, driven an hour across Istanbul to meet us. And we thought we'd meet a nice person and probably minister to them, but we sat with Matt and Kristen Lars and the four of us 
screwed to our chairs as she spoke in a quiet voice with tender humility that they head up a ministry called Live, Die, Silk Road, that they will die on the Silk Road that links Europe with China. I mentioned it when I was here the last time, but I don't mind mentioning it again, because 400 million people, that's larger than the population of the United States. There's but a handful of missionaries, Christians, and churches. And when you hear her speak with her gentle voice, your heart cannot be stirred by the humility of a woman who believes that her life can count. Offering no guilt for those who live a more sedate suburban existence, and yet stirring faith to an adventure that is way beyond them. I said, Sarah, how many children do you have? She said, I can't. Tears filled up in her eyes. She said, I can't have any. But we feel like God has said, what we do not have biologically, we will have spiritually. We will have many sons and daughters. They live in Kyrgyzstan. When the lockdown happened, they were separated for nine months. I zoomed in with them. How are you guys doing? What's it like being apart from each other for nine months? Well, and how can we can be doubly effective? I'm in Turkey. I'm training up church planters. He's in Kazakhstan. He's training up church planters. We can be doubly effective. How humbling. Not a moment's gripe, not a moment's complaint. What a privilege that we can count for the kingdom in these dastardly times. So this is an Acts 20 moment. doesn't mean we'll do it every year, but it means that this is the year God's asked us to bring Elders, emerging elders, emerging leaders together for a few days. I think it's a day too short. If I regret anything, it's the shortness of the time. Because there are men and women we need to hear from who we can't. But tomorrow, Bert, where are you, Bert? Where are you? Bert's one of our emerging teachers in California. Great gift on his life. He's still learning and growing and developing as a teacher. You're going to hear from him. He said to me, Chris, are you sure there are others more capable than I? And I said, you're right, there are. But your voice needs to be heard this time. Meryl's going to teach part of the session with him. He's going to do 20 minutes, she is. And Nick and Cutty are going to do the second session on marriage in the front lines. Because I needn't tell you that we need... Sustained intentional investment into our marriages, especially given the last two years and all that it's brought. Meryl's a healthcare professional. She's a therapist. She will tell you, not tomorrow, but in private conversation, I'm sure, at what is happening in the healthcare profession of which we are one. It's a traumatic time. Ladies and gentlemen, there are 3,000 pastors in America resigning from the ministry every month. We are going backwards. America is in a very bad state spiritually. Please don't come and come to the sexy, glitzy conferences and be fooled by what that represents. It's candy floss. The nuts and bolts on the ground is traumatic and painful and difficult. After lunch, we've added something that's not on your planner that uh, Rob, Nick, and I are just going to dialogue a little around identifying, training, and developing your eldership team. Just an hour of 
dialogue, questions and answers and interaction. It's a conversation we're all in. I'm in it. We planted a church five years ago and we're busy with our elders in training right now. I need to hear what the brothers have to say. The braai or barbecue, volleyball, and then in the evening, uh, Josie, is, are you here, Josie? Josie? Josie Hardy and Rob are going to be teaching. Jody's a remarkable young woman with an incredible touch of God on her life. And I emailed her from, from L.A. and I said, Jose, we want to hear from you. And she said, what? I said, I don't know. I, <laughs> I could be cheeky and say, go near God for yourself. But I wouldn't say that because that would be unkind, you know. <laughs> but it's not about running a slick event. And can I compliment this incredible church for the way they administrate these times. It is humbling. It's overwhelming. It is with deep gratitude that we thank you because the men and women of God are worthy of being hosted and loved and cared for and fed. But it's not a conference. It's a boot camp. It's put on your boots, strap them tight. Make sure your camo fatigues are ready for the adventure God is. We're not here to impress you, folk. We're not here pulling out our best sermons, waxing lyrical, getting 30 high fives when we're done. We are here to identify the voice of God to ready us for the next assignment that we're on. That's our deep passion. Why do we even exist as Genesis Collective? I have with great reluctance given it a name. And there's a long story around that. But it was... September 2017 in a house in Laguna Beach looking out over the water where God met with six couples in a most unique way. I've rarely been in a room where all six of us, couples, wept. We had no idea that God was pulling us together to become together on mission. No idea. I'd given up that dream of ever being part of it again, never mind leading it. That was completely off the radar. God met with us that day in, in a moment so sacred, we, it's branded on all of our souls, where we looked at each other and there was no doubt in our minds that God would brought us together, random, for a specific assignment. And we realized the lane that God has called us to run on is really together on mission, and that means three things. If you want to know what we're on about, these are the three boot camp basics that we're on about. Firstly, is to take the gospel to the four corners of the globe. Nick mentioned the statistics. I don't know what that does for you. I can't consider two plus billion people. I don't know what that means. I don't have an imagination that can cope with it. But over two point something billion people have never heard the precious name of Jesus. Never heard it once. People say, oh, Jesus is coming back. That is the worst conspiracy theory I have ever heard. He will never lie. And he said, Jesus did, I will not come back until every man, woman, and child has had the opportunity to hear that name that is above all other names. Two billion people, do you know how many two billion people are? And then secondly, it's that part of the world where Jesus has been neglected, forgotten, or ignored. I was chatting with the pastor in, in, in Holland this past week. And uh, one in Dresden, Germany, a diff different Zoom call. The sheer spiritual 
destitute region where Jesus has been neglected, forgotten, and ignored. Isaiah speaks of rebuilding the ancient cities. Who will go into Western Europe? A spiritual desert. Beautiful. Dead. Who will go? Who will go and make their dining room table available? One of the key biblical strategies to, for church planting that we neglect, forgotten, and gave up, we ignored. Jack and Denise Naidu, two of the most incredible people you'll ever meet. From Johannesburg, work for Cisco. Works for Cisco, the corporate company. Went to Dubai and encountered God in a sublime way. They looked at each other when we were talking about these things and they said, we love having people around our table. She loves cooking curry. Curry. And they said, could God use us? They came on a 10-month uh, church planting cohort that we run every year. Jack and Denise Naidu from Benoni. And they dared ask Jesus if he could use a couple just like them. He is delightfully hilarious. She is passionate and joyous. And they said, we've got a dining room table. We love having people around and feeding them. Could God use someone just like us? So he asked for a transfer from Cisco, Dubai to Cisco, Amsterdam. They moved into Harlem. They've got an apartment, they've got a dining room table, they tell me most happily, the journey has begun. I want you to take your Bibles with me, please, and go with me to Numbers, uh, Exodus, I'm sorry. Pardon? Three things. Oh, sorry, yes, thanks, Nick. So the three things, my mind, yeah. So the three things that we, that, that, that's our lane. It's, it's not very sexy, it's not very big, and there are other movements that do incredible things in their lane, is number one, is to take the gospel to the four corners of the globe. Number two, is leadership growth and development. We will never do it without men and women who put their hands up. But can I say this? This kind of leader, as we'll talk about in just a moment, it's not the one who was head boy or head girl or captain of the right. This is a far more humble, meek version. And then thirdly, it's to plant robust, healthy, multiplying communities into those spaces. You know that American men do not make friends after 25. The overriding sociological data is an American man does not know how to make a friend after he's 25. Do you know how beautiful that is for the church? To invite them into community rather than lost in the isolation of historical friendships? Oh, these are exciting times to walk with Jesus. These are incredible times to walk with his church. Holy communities representing the eternal and the transcendent. Right here, right now. I love the church. 45 years 45 years. People say to me, well, I can't go any more, more meetings. I don't know how many meetings we've been to. Take an average of three a week for 45 years, and you would think I'm done with meetings. Are you kidding me? 
you know what God does when we come together? Do you know the power of the Spirit when the Word is opened? Do you know the great adventures? Funny story, and forgive the language, please, but I'm going to tell it as it was told. We had a worship event the other day in our little community. We take all the chairs out, and we worship. It was a fabulous evening. And I looked across to my right, and there was a young girl, quite pretty. I'm going to put her at 2021. That's kind of our church. And she stood like this. And I thought, God, you've got her. You've got her. So I go over to Dana, my daughter, who's one of the leaders in the church. I said, Dee, will you go and pray for her? Dana goes across, and I mean, the, the floodgates open, and she just starts weeping. I go and pray for her afterwards, and she is just out of control. And she goes to Dana, now forgive the language, please, but it's beautiful when a person who doesn't know Jesus comes into the presence of the anointing. And she said, when you guys sing, does this shit happen all the time? I said, yeah. Pretty much is what happens all the time. She doesn't even have the language. She doesn't even know what to say that's nice and Christianese. She just knows she encountered the living God and within her own vernacular, she expressed it as much as she could. Ladies and gentlemen, the power of the anointing, and I'm not talking about a charismatic Pentecostal subculture. I'm talking about the authentic presence and power of God to transform lives is still our great traveling companion. It's still the great joy of heaven to meet with earth and to transform us. There's an incredible story of a woman called Dorothy Day. The Pope is probably going to make her a saint. Now, I say that only because she's a remarkable woman. Very bohemian, ended up in prison, addict. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And her life changed when she gave birth to her little, little daughter in the hospital she held this little girl and she said, I have to thank someone for this. Who do I worship? Because I cannot create this beauty. And it was in that hospital bed with her baby in her arms that transformed her life because she found the author of life whom she could worship. And she spent the rest of her days, she was used to the high life, fancy restaurants, fancy cars, and she ended up the rest of her days living with broken Addicted, homeless, abused woman. She was used to fancy restaurants and now she often only had bread and water. But her closing comment at the end of her life was, thank you that I've had such a privilege to have Jesus on my mind for so long. They said, no, write your autobiography. It's going to be so cool. She said, oh, the only thing I have to say is what a privilege. She actually said, I'm lucky the privilege to have Jesus on my mind for so long. All right. Num uh, Exodus, please. So three things to get the gospel out there, to recognize, raise up leaders, and to plant robust communities. I want to take us to the Old Testament and three stories quickly, and I, I, will, I will trust I will be brief. Why? Well, partly because as we came out of COVID into COVID normal, we really felt as a community we needed to scrum down around the Holy Spirit. Only for me to find how many other churches, and I think at last there was like 24 churches, completely disconnected, who were all starting a Holy Spirit journey, including Mark uh, at The Rock. And uh, so we've been exchanging some thoughts and notes. But, but the temptation in a charismatic world is to go to Acts chapter 1 and 2. 
and the dunamis and the power and encounter God. And, and I, I, I thought, Lord, is there another way to teach this? And part of the other way is what I'm going to just walk you through right now very briefly because I want, if I can, kind of minister to you and teach you practically. In theological circles, there are two ways we can uh, grow in our knowledge of who God is. The one is systematic theology where we take an idea and we plug it with texts. And we adjust the idea to the texts that shape it. And so you will get things like sovereignty of God, 32 verses. But narrative theology is different. Now, the progressives have abused narrative theology, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, just whistle God save the Queen for three minutes. But narrative theology has been abused because it's, it's taken the story of God, and rather than letting our understanding of God unfold as the passage goes. In other words, God introduces himself as an artist in Acts chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 1, and then that's where his starting point is. He says, if you want to know me, you've got to understand me as an artist, or you'll never know me. And as the narrative unfolds, and we get to Genesis 3 and the judgment of God, you realize God isn't just Mr. Nice Guy, who's a Father Christmas, who wants to make me happy. Oh, you get a big church preaching that, but you get no transformation, because it's feeding into what the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor said, expressive individualism. But true, helpful narrative theology is as the story goes, we pick up what God is trying to say about himself. Bring those two together, systematic theology with narrative theology, and the understanding of who God is is profound. So I'm going to take you to three Holy Spirit texts in the Old Testament very quickly and help you both in your grasp of the Holy Spirit, but also maybe adjust the way you teach just a tad. Asking yourself, systematic theology, narrative theology, how can I bring those together in the text? Exodus, please, chapter 35. I'll pick up in verse 30. Verse 30. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God. So obviously he's going to speak in tongues. You know, obviously got a charismatic meeting. Uh, no, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood and engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him and Olia, son of whatever, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. And he filled them with the skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiders in purple, in blue, purple, scarlet yarn, and fine linen and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. Now I can carry on reading, but the point is made. What is it about this passage that is so compelling? That is so incredibly helpful to us? Well, I want to argue right off the bat, this is a single man. And I want to say that because sometimes by model, we're communicating to people that you have to be married to be effective for Jesus. And I want to smite that with all of my heart. Marriage is not a guarantee for ministry effectiveness. Obedience is. Secondly, 
The Bible gives us this unfolding idea of who his dad was and who his granddad was. Well, is that just kind of for historical significance? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe the God idea here is what this man is about to experience will happen within the incubation of a spiritual family. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is so much deconstruction in the church. Well, I don't need to go to church anymore. I have church at home. I watch it on TV. I cannot believe how people have been swamped by that falsehood. Honestly. And you know, the joy of leading a small church is it's a small church. You're not fussed because a whole bunch of your people are going off to watch Elevation or Ark or something. But this idea of a single man within a family system within a spiritual, not just biological family system, is there is an optimum potential that he will reach only, only within the family God has assigned to him. But can you hear me, please? I'll say that again if I can remember it. Hey, I'm 64 in a couple of months. I'm getting old. That there is a spiritual potential and fullness and completion you will only reach when you are in your spiritual family. And then of the tribe of Judah, two things jump at me there. The one is, sorry, I need to slow down. I'm hyperventilating. How am I doing, my love? Two things. One is this happens in the ambience of worship. It doesn't even have to be good worship. Oh, no, no, Chris, I, I love Jesus and I read my Bible every day. What foolishness. It's in the gathering of our togetherness and the worship that the tribe of Judah was responsible for that this artist was about to find his fullest expression. Because it's in the ambience of worship where God meets with us, where we encounter him as we'll see in just a moment. So it's a single man. He's from a particular family system who is in a particular tribe. We are a tribe if we apply this into a group context. Where God, through our tribal connectivity, puts us in spaces and places way beyond our own ability, way beyond our own experience. And we're suddenly living and doing things that, that you know, honestly, every day, and I know some of you only know me beyond a pulpit, but I'm humbled. I'm an Afrikaans kid and my opa had a farm in Funnabell Park. Every day I say, oh God, why? Why me? Why me? I get embarrassed, my brother's here. I get embarrassed sometimes talking to my family. So what are you up to, Chris? Well, I'm gonna be in Dubai and then I'm gonna Portugal and, and, and I think, see that sounds really, play it down. Because the goodness of God is so incredibly overwhelming within the tribe he attaches us to. We live a life be way beyond our imagination. And I think those of you who are older like me, it is God's sense of humor to get me to plant a church in my old age. Because some of you have postured yourself for a mediocre retirement package for 20 years of nothingness, and then you die. Do you know how strategic you can be? Do you know how powerful you can be with all your knowledge and experience? 
But what else catches me is that the anointing was there to design. Folks, we who have a charismatic legacy tend to attach the anointing to meetings, to tongues, to prophecies, to all matter of things that may be true, but at first mention. Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit is hovering. The anointing is coming on a dark and chaotic world and bringing order and light and presence. God the Creator reveals Himself in that moment, and now the Holy Spirit comes upon an artist, and the author speaks that he is filled with the Holy Spirit to design. He's a weaver, he's a man who works with wood, he's a carver. And I want to encourage those of you for whom you may have struggled with the church feeling I have no place because who I am is not an upfront person. I'll never lead worship. I'll never do the young adults. Where do I fit in? I'm single. Oh, well, that's it. I'm done. I'm fried. Oh, dear friends, that just isn't Bible. It just isn't true. You should have a pad next to your bed with a pencil, and as God gives you dreams and visions during the night, you record them. Two stories quickly. Mike McMeekin was with us at Glenridge in the early years. Mike didn't finish high school, went surfing around Australia and did drugs, came back to South Africa and got radically saved. He wasn't a man who had any real experience or education, so I think, those of you know him may correct me, but I think he sold cars, and he came to me one day, and he said to me, Chris, God wants me to be a painter. I said, Mike, that's incredible. He said, no, God spoke it to me. I have an anointing to paint. He went off to the Technicon, studied for three years. We've got three of his original pieces hanging up in our home. Are they really good pieces? I don't know. But it's the story. It's the story. the story. Everyone who comes to my home gets a tour of the paintings because they're all painted by friends. But you see, Mike became the president of the NSA and he shaped arts in Natal. He was the driving agent behind the building of the NSA building in, in Bulwer Road there. I don't even know what it's called anymore. Then he moved to Australia and he painted and he had exhibitions in galleries, Japan, when did it start? When that moment we realized God has anointed me to paint. I'm so sorry, you who are artists, entrepreneurs, ideators, because we've offended your calling by not validating what's in you. God the artist chose to anoint this man with these things that were only possible by the Spirit. Anyway, there are more stories to tell. I've got to move on, or I'm going to run really late. Numbers chapter 11, please. We'll pick up in verse 23 quickly. Are you still with me? The Lord answered Moses. It's uh, verse 23 of chapter 11. Is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not I will say 
what I say will come true for you. Moses went up and told the people what the Lord had said, and he brought together 70 of the elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with them, and he took some of the power. This is an incredible passage. Some of the power of the Spirit that was on Moses, God took off him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the Lord rested on them, they prophesied tragedy, but they did not do it again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders but did not go to the tent. Yet the Spirit rested on them and they prophesied in the camp. And a young man rang and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, who had made Moses, who was, yeah, had been Moses' age since youth, said, Moses, my Lord, please stop them. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all God, the Lord's people would, were prophets and that the Lord would put my spirit on them. Quickly, just some conversational pieces. This is in the context of people's complaint. Now, I want to ask you with all fatherly affection, if you are a complainer, a critic, and a cynic, please stop. Stop. I've sat across the table, I want to be emotional, from too many pastors who've left lucrative lives to give their life to 50, 60, 100 people. And people without reserve are critical, cynical, and complainers. Please stop. We cannot afford another ministry casualty. The destruction of complaint is unbearable. Stop. Why am I including this in this little story? Well, Moses complains, uh, gets before God, and God gives him a divine strategy. He says, bring on 70 elders. The story is wonderful. He takes the spirit that was on Moses, and he puts it on the 70. What is my cultural, contextual application? Please be very careful under whose leadership you position yourself, because it will come on you. That's what confuses me. Listen, John Markoma is a very dear friend. If you're a millennial and you know that name, you've read his books. We've been on his board. He is astounded how many people listen to him and watch him online. Chris, they don't even know my marriage. They don't even know my kids. How do they know the spirit that is on me? And it's not just the ministry spirit can come on them. It's foolhardy, dear friends. You have to know if he's married, a man's marriage. Timothy requires it. You have to know his kids. Do Jude, Mo, and Sunday, do they love Jesus? Do you know how uh, Jude is doing at high school, struggling? Learning disabilities. Do you know how he's doing? No, you don't. But he's your pastor. It's foolishness. Because the spirit that is on Moses is the spirit that comes on the 70. Isn't it tragic that they prophesied and then they stopped? 
But we just accept it. Oh, that's what happens. Folks, when we stop prophesying, there is something in our soul that gets disrupted. We have become dried out like a sponge, and the free flow presence of God is no longer from our lips. Do you know the tradition of these 70? Sanhedrin. They put Jesus on the cross. The tradition of the 70 and 70 and 70 and 70 over eons of time with a Sanhedrin who was 70 or 72. And when I heard, when I read that with a couple of the commentators, I was devastated. They put Jesus on the cross. The very ones who took and got the anointing, who stopped prophesying, put the Son of God on a cross. When we stop prophesying, is when there is an indicator that our soul is not well. Our intimacy with the Most High is not well. And that is our first priority. All right, I can say more, but I'm done. One more. Okay, have, you got, have you got a minute for another one? Okay. Uh, 1 Samuel 10, please. So there is an anointing in creativity. There is an anointing in the leadership you're under. And now there is an anointing in community. 1 Samuel, please, chapter 10, verses 5 through 11. And after that, this is Samuel speaking to Saul, who was to be king. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God where there is a Philistine outpost. And if you approach the town, you will meet a a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, harps, and uh, being played before them, and they will be prophesying. This is a good thing. The prophet is telling the king-to-be to go to that community. We don't go because it's a great kid's ministry. We don't go because there's a great parking lot. We go because God has assigned us to go to that community because it's in that community, that ecosystem in which we will grow and be readied and be prepared for the assignment that lies ahead. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do and God is with you. Now folks, as much as I'm passionate about seeing the the ideation and the entrepreneur and the, uh, the, 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 the creative allowing the presence of God in a secular space to come upon them, As excited as I am about the leadership piece and the anointing being transferred and placed on you so that you would continue to prophesy, this is compelling to me because God puts us in a community that is an ecosystem. There must be more than this. Of course there is. Except you don't want it. Because you believe in your own ecosystem. Me, I, and mine is an ecosystem sufficiently capable to let me get to the heights that God has called me into. Or, Samuel says, go to that community because in that community you will prophesy and in that community you will be changed. That's a beautiful story except there's a part two. 1 Samuel 
chapter 19, please. From verse 18. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Nioth and stayed there. But the word came to Saul, the king, sorry, David is in Nioth and Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when he saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. And Saul was told about it, so he sent more men, and they prophesied too, because we become like the community we go to. Choose it wisely. Choose it carefully. He sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. And finally, he himself left for Ramah and came to the great cistern at Sikor. And he asked, where is Samuel and David? And over in Nioth at Ramah, they said, so Saul went to Nioth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came in Nioth. Now, please listen to the following. He stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all day and all that night. One of the translations said he collapsed. Others say he lay. This is why the people said, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, these two stories, and I am landing, these two stories are mirror images of each other. This time he goes to the community he should always have been attached to. But this time he's got a hard heart. This time he's got an unchallenged ego. This time he is trying to manage his own future when God actually puts us into a community to manage our future. To achieve the fullness and the richness of what God... Do you understand how incredible that is? God in his wisdom takes us out of where we are and he places in community because that community will be the fullness of what we need to become one day with all of its warts and all, with all of its poor leadership. It's, it's sublime to me. Now Saul goes back to the community that God had asked him, the prophet had asked him to be in. So he sends his other men. It's like a dad saying to the wife, go and check out that church. Because the kids went to the youth, got radically touched. Well, you go and check it out, honey. She comes back. She's radically touched. And he says, oh, dang, I've got to go. And he comes in, ladies and gentlemen, because the anointing and the presence of God does not guarantee anything. This is a more powerful anointing. He collapses under the presence of God, the CB, uh, CBC, I think it's called. He collapses. He's prophesying. He's prophesying all night and all day. He is naked. I'm so glad I'm not leading that meeting. I've been in some pretty cool Toronto meetings that were nutty, but I've never had people take their clothes off. The king is naked. There is a greater anointing. He's prophesying not once, but all day and all night. He collapses under the power of God. This is legit, awful down stuff. But he walks away unchanged. Because he never allowed God to change his heart. You see, even the best community with the greatest anointing and the presence of God will be worthless. Can I be honest with you? We've, as you know, been doing this a long time. 
And that's why I started where I did. We want revival. And for many people, let's, let's shake more. Oh, the anointing was strong tonight. No, sir. Do you love your wife more? Because all that shaking means absolutely nothing. Are you gentle, kind? Has the Spirit of God transformed your heart? Or are you still angry? But I don't care, honestly, how many times you fall over or how many tongues you have or how many stories you have in your journal and being with God. I called one of our young guys who moved to be part of a plant in the Bethel model. Pete, how are you doing? Great, man, great. Oh, you should have been at the meeting last night. The glory. I didn't, but I wanted to be cheeky and say, Pete, how's your wife? I really don't care about the glory. If the glory does not transform my soul, we have wasted God's great presence. What did this king do? He tried with all of his might to kill the next king because he'd moved out of community into self-management had grown bitter and angry in the process, and even when he stepped back into the anointing, it made no difference to him whatsoever. I think it was last chance saloon. I think God said, I'm going to give you one more chance, boy. And he came out angry, bitter, resentful, in spite of a weightier glory. And God said, I'm done. I'm done. These are a great few days, but they are positional days where we decide the extent to which we allow the Spirit of God to access us. Will He stir our hearts to be creative, full of ideations, entrepreneurial initiatives, design, craftsmanship, not based on personality or skill or talent or the university I went to, but based on the anointing of God that comes on me? Am I positioning myself to be under leadership upon whom the power of God can come on me just like it is on them? And am I open to go and be sent to the community of the prophets because that will be my ecosystem? There must be more than this. Sir, madam, it's found in the ecosystem of God's initiative for you. That's where you will find them more than this. That's where God rubs off the rough edges in your life and creates a vessel to carry the jars, the jar of clay to carry the glory of God. That's where it happens. Can we pray together? If your spouse is here, forgive me single people, I've just undone everything I've said. If your spouse is here, would you hold her or his hand? Because it's a dual response. If you're single, you take that first point of mine with gusto. And I'm asking you to bless them. Speak words of life over them. Let the anointing that is on you go on to them. 
because there are some big decisions that await you. And it requires, like Saul, a transformed heart. 